in a book I read. I don't remember which book. I did not cite it, but it was a book. Okay. And I read it. And it said... (laughs) No, I didn't read it. I skimmed it. (laughs) It's still reading it. (laughs) There's a little man that lives in my ear and he tells me what to say. Good morning, good day, and good evening. And good night. Good night. Welcome to episode 22 of the Insomnia Report. Ah. Wow. (laughs) If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you have listened before, welcome back. We're so happy to have you. I'm Elizabeth. I'm Margot. And this is an episode on things we wish we learned in school. Yes. Yes. There's a lot we didn't learn. So or there's a have... lot we learned and it was just like, you know, touched briefly or yeah. I don't know. Or we learned it and we forgot. <laughs> Honestly, most of the time me, I would, after the unit, it would just, all mm. right, I'll light the candle if you want to tell Do me it. about your your week, <laughs> what's been keeping um, you up. Gosh, what's been keeping me up? Ooh. Ooh. Musical. It's pink. Oh, the match? Yeah. Oh, wow. So tell me about your week. The candle's lit. <laughs> There's smoke everywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. I smell I smell that. Ooh. Sorry. Gosh, Margo. I know. No, it's okay. Um, What is my week? What is my week like? What is my week? <laughs> I. It is the end of the week. It's Friday. All right. I, we watched The Bachelor Women Tell All. Mm. That was something. It was. Wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't get why they were all rude to Katie. No, that was unjustified. And they were too nice to the people that were bullies. Mm Mm-hmm. And then... And Matt had a beard. Yeah. Like an intense beard. And what did you say? It's the beard of a single man. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see how that ends. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's kept me up. I feel like, what did, did we do something else this week? We all, we recorded a, a different episode earlier. We did. Yeah, that was a fun one. That was fun. We hope you liked episode 21. We had a really good time recording. We did. What's kept you up at night? Doing various research and going down internet rabbit holes. Oh, yeah. Such as still kind of on the, the kick of the psychology of like detective work, mm. I think is really cool. Or I've been looking up... Well, after, okay, so after the Dybbuk Box episode, apparently there's, like, videos of people, like, I bought a haunted item on eBay. Oh, I bought this item, like, let's see what happens, and then weird stuff happens in their house, and it's, like, I don't know if it's real or not, but, yeah, people are dumb. I followed a lady on Instagram once who would post in her story and, like, ask people to send in photos of their haunted dolls and it, and she would be able to like look at the photos and tell them about the spirit inside their haunted dolls like I don't know if this okay. is I don't know if it's like a real thing sure but like I thought it was kind of strange and I would go through her story sometimes and she'd be like 
someone sent me this picture of this doll with real human hair and her name's annabelle and well no that's a real one um right. <laughs> like you know whatever her name petunia. is yeah petunia and she hates cats and she just wants to play like with you and i don't know she would just go on these like really weird rants i guess that's one way to get followers and, yeah. like who knows if it's real or not i don't know who knows that's who's to say intriguing would you buy a haunted item no no. Would you? No. Not in t- <laughs> like not on purpose. No. Right. No. Well, we talked about if we would go to see the Dybbuk box oh. in Zach's museum. Yeah. Like, would you sign the waiver or would yeah. you do it? Yeah. Would you do it? Probably. I think I would do it because it's like I'm here and mm. it, like my intentions are positive. Like I wouldn't mm. like mock anything there mm-hmm. regardless of what you believe or not as long as you're respectful like i'm gonna yeah hold that as my saving grace mm-hmm. i, I think sense. i would because it's like if i'm there but if i'm mm. if i'm like not feeling well or yeah then you i don't know I, I guess i just trust how i'm feeling I'm, yeah go but with your gut if anything i can just shove a healing crystal up my ear <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a bad idea <laughs> there are worse things that <laughs> that being said I don't know how to transition from that. I don't either. (laughs) Why don't you tell me something? Okay. So, class. The thing about some... The thing about some famous people we learned about in history or in our classes is we know the name and what they did, but we don't really learn a whole lot about their lives. And I think... I'll tend to lean towards that because there are, you know, people in history that have very interesting stories or you only know the surface of things. Mm-hmm. And for one in particular, I had this subject come up a couple of times throughout research or in different books or magazines here or there. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Or I didn't know that. And then I started to see it everywhere, so I kind of took it as a sign. I'm like, okay, like I'm I'm gonna talk about this. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna go for it. So do it. This gentleman fits our podcast pretty well because there is a level of unsolved towards it. Ooh. There's some paranormal. Oh my gosh. There's horror. There's education. So, like, not exactly wild card because it's more so of, like, a fun history class. Like, think of Mm. me as the substitute teacher, like, going off syllabus a little, you know? Do you remember our juggling substitute teacher? Yeah, I remember one time he was my substitute in art class and he was reading Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, but in Spanish. Oh, he was so cool. Yeah. Do you remember that guy who would do the Yoda voice? Did you ever have him? I don't... Maybe. He was a different substitute teacher who just, like, did an excellent Yoda voice. Oh, I think so. Probably. Like, you know, they make their rounds. Yeah, yeah. We did kind of learn about him in school in various topics, but like I said, not not the full story. At least I didn't mm. know. So, this man is a writer, a critic, a storyteller, and a poet. Oh, I love poets. Me too. So, I'm, I was happy about this one I'll, I'll talk about it later but okay he shaped what we knew as short stories modern detective tales as well as mystery and horror he's the master of macrobe 
as some would say. Do you have any idea who it is? Is it Edgar Allan Poe? Ah, yeah. (laughs) Cool. So Edgar Allan Poe was born in 1809 in Boston, Massachusetts. His parents were traveling actors, although he didn't know them very well. When he was two, his mother, Elizabeth, oh. or Eliza, uh, died of tuberculosis oh at the age of 24. And his father, David, left the family prior to her death and shortly after his little sister was born. So he had a brother named William Henry Leonard and a sister named Rosalie. When Elizabeth died, the siblings were all separated and put into different foster families. Edgar was sent to Richmond, Virginia, and he was taken in by John and Francis Allen. So his biological family was Poe. So he was taken in by the Allen family. So John was a wealthy tobacco merchant and... They gave him the formal name Edgar Allan Poe, but they never actually legally adopted him. Mm. He had a really good relationship with Frances. She was a very loving, nurturing woman, and she never had any children of her own, even though she wanted to. I don't know if it was because she couldn't or what the circumstances were, but she heard about you know, the death of the Poe's. Or at least, you know, Mrs. Poe mm-hmm. and said, why don't we take in one of their children? So he had a really great relationship with Francis, whereas John was more of a stern, stuffy, mm-hmm. snooty. What's another S word? Snob. Scary. Scary. <laughs> I don't know. Scurvy. It's a disease. Skadoodle. <laughs> this man was, he was stern. Okay. <laughs> They moved to England for a few years, and he attended boarding school in Chelsea. He met Alan's family in Scotland, and they traveled along various British countryside locations, which is pretty cool, but then they moved back to the States, but he kind of got a different appreciation for things. Mm. Poe excelled academically. He was gifted at languages including Greek and Latin, but writing was his true passion. As early as 13, he started writing poetry. So according to the Poe Museum, it says that he would use whatever sources he could to write his poems. So he would write on his bed sheets or he would even use old business papers of his father's. He even collected some of his poems that he had written and he asked John if he could publish them. So John actually considered it. But at the time, Edgar's headmaster at his school said he didn't think it would be the headmaster and John Allen conversed, discussed this. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, like, I don't I don't know if that's a good idea because it was kind of a, I guess, more of a posh place. Mm. And they're like, creativity is not like you must be (laughs) a lawyer or a businessman. And he's like. That's your dream. (laughs) I want to be a dentist. (laughs) I want to be a poet. So Alan, as in John, the foster father, decided to kind of like extinguish this and just be like, no, like that's not a real 
career, you need to go into business, writing isn't going to do anything for you. So he kind of put the kibosh on that. Edgar also had a childhood sweetheart named Sarah. And before he went off to college, they actually got engaged. Poe attended the University of Virginia, where he, again, was pretty successful academically. However, John Allen barely gave him enough money to be financially supported in school. So according to some sources, Poe was given one-third of the necessary amount of funds that he would have needed Mm. for books or lodging or food, clothes. So basically, he covered tuition and everything else was on his own. Mm -hmm. So Edgar said, okay, you know what? Let me try gambling. Hmm. What could go wrong? (laughs) So another source said that he was so poor that he would have to burn his furniture to stay warm, but I feel like that definitely wasn't allowed and he probably would have been like expelled, but wow, just letting you know, I read it (laughs) and I don't know if it's true. Okay. It was also recalled that he was a bit of a heavy drinker, so he had Mm. a little bit of a problem with that. But mainly gambling and the financial strain is what caused him to, you know, not continue at university, and he only lasted one year. So he returned home only to find that his fiancée, Sarah, had gotten engaged to someone else. (gasps) How dare she? I know, rude. What the hell? Well, here's here's the juice. Here's the tea. Tell me. Go. So, in one source I read, it was said Sarah's father did not approve of Edgar, and he was intercepting love letters that Edgar would write to Sarah while he was at school, which essentially caused it to break it off because she thought he lost interest or his father was like, why would he, you know, he doesn't even write to you. Isn't that weird? As he's like putting paper in the fire or whatever. That's horrible. So the new man that Sarah found was a wealthy businessman and Poe didn't have a guaranteed income if he was going to be a writer. Mm. So, you know, just because his foster family was well off didn't mean he would be so sarah found someone else wow so that obviously broke his heart and he was feeling kind of sad because he left school and i'm sure he was just feeling a lot of like different things you know he also had a fallen out with john because of his drinking and gambling problems but edgar was like you didn't support me like Mm. you know so he was mad at him and tensions were definitely on the rise, and they ended up having, like, not a good relationship after that. Oh. So Edgar then decided, you know what, I'm going to move to Boston, and I'm going to try to make it make my dream happen. So he would get odd jobs here and there, and he published his first book at the age of 18 called Timberlane and Other Poems. Under a pen name, a Bostonian. Creative. <laughs> wow. So, okay. less than 50 copies were ever made. But could you imagine if you had one of those? Like, how? Yeah. yeah. I bet that's worth, like, a million dollars. Oh, 100%. Yeah. But 
anyway, nothing happened, you know. Uh-huh. He could not make ends meet, so he decided that he would enlist in the army to support himself. Mm. There he used a fake name called Edgar A. Perry. Very <laughs> deceiving. And he said that he was 22 when he was actually 18. Mm. After two years, I don't know why he used a fake name. I wonder if at the time you also had to, like, had to be older than 18 to enlist. Because oh, maybe. why would he lie about his age? Yeah, that's true. I don't know. After two years, he actually ranked up to Sergeant Major, which was the highest rank that he could have gotten on a, oh. as a non-commissioned person. Mm-hmm. So he did pretty well, but... When he was in the army, he got word that Francis became suddenly ill, so he got leave to go back to Richmond, but by the time he got there, she had already passed and she had been buried. Oh, no. So this was incredibly hard for Poe for obvious reasons, but he did have a really great relationship. She was incredibly empathetic and really nurtured him, so... You know, he was very fond of her, and he was sad that he couldn't be there, and it happened suddenly, and obviously it's hard to lose someone that you really care about, but Mm -hmm. here, it was at this moment that Alan and Poe seemed to, you know, kind of make amends and and try to rebuild their relationship uh, because they were grieving together, and they were like, this is probably what Francis would have wanted, Mm -hmm. So what you could do at the time is in order to terminate your military contract, you could get a sponsor or pay your way out of it in a way. Mm -hmm. So Alan sponsored Edgar and he, you know, paid out his military contract. Uh, It was supposed to be five years. He only served two. And then Poe attended West Point. Oh. And again, he did pretty well academically, but after eight months, he dropped out or was potentially kicked out for not attending to his duties. And that was when he was officially like disowned by John. Oh. So during his time at West Point, John had remarried without telling Edgar as well. And apparently that really hurt Edgar because first of all, he didn't tell him. Second of all... He cared about Francis, so I'm not sure how he was feeling, but um, it was pretty bitter. And then shortly, this was also pretty quickly after Francis died, and I know the the new wife also didn't like Edgar, so mm. it was just you know evil stepmother, evil stepmother. with the evil yeah. stepdad too. Like they everyone's just, evil, yeah, evil rich mm. snooty, like meh. gross. So you know, Poe after. Dropping out of West Point, Poe moved to Baltimore to find, you know, some members of his real family, and then he moved in with his biological aunt, which was his mom's sister. Hmm. John Allen ended up passing away in 1834, but he did not put Edgar into his will, so he received none of his estate, and he was kind of expecting that. Oh, damn. Um, But it did go to a child that apparently John had that Edgar had never met. What? I think with the new wife. Oh. Or it was an illegitimate child. Scandal. Mm. So obviously that was a huge bummer. He had gotten some jobs, you know, writing articles or doing this and that. Again, like kind of just a starving artist. But eventually he did start to pick up some pretty good recognition. But even with 
having a pretty good name here and there. It, not a lot of money came with it. Uh, he did win a contest where he won about like the equivalent to $1,000 today, which helped boost his confidence. And it also helped land him another write-in job. He also met a woman named Virginia, who he was absolutely in love with. And in 1835, at the age of 27, Edgar married his 13-year-old cousin. Are you fucking serious? (laughs) I'm I'm dead serious. (laughs) Is this Virginia? Yeah. I don't know why, like, this is so shocking to me, but, like, (laughs) well, first of all, it's his cousin. Second of all, she's 13. She's a child. That's disgusting. She's 27. I'm sorry. She was 27. That's disgusting. Okay, so here, apparently, and on her marriage license, she said that she was 21. So, like, even in the 1800s, people wanted to be 21 and lied about their age. Did he know that she wasn't 21? (laughs) It was his cousin. Oh, God. So, okay. So, here's what I've I've read about this. Like, obviously, like, every this is incredibly controversial. But, like, at the time, it wasn't that weird to marry your cousin. Okay. That that I can accept. But at 13, that was weird. Uh, Yeah. The age thing was weird. That's weird. It's weird. It's it's not not It's not okay. Like, no matter what time. Oh, my God. The cousin, yeah, I don't care. Like, it's it's fine. It's not your sister. But, oh, my God. (laughs) 13 years old. 13. Which. It's a baby. Baby child. Baby. Oh, God. Okay. So, so, okay. So, here's some, here's some context. Please. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, one thing is, obviously, he lived with his aunt and her. And when he moved in, she was only nine. I don't, that doesn't make it better. But <laughs> wait, okay. So she's the daughter of his aunt that he moved in with. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't make it better. She was nine when he moved in and like met her. So apparently her grandmother died. So his great aunt mm-hmm. died. And at the funeral, like they bonded because he was like holding her while they cried. And I guess she thought, like, oh, that's really sweet. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't write this in my notes, so bear with me. Okay. But basically, what I understand happened is back then she she wasn't in school or she wasn't getting educated or anything. Mm-hmm. She could play the piano and sing. But uh, apparently someone wrote a letter to Edgar's aunt and basically said, oh, I know someone who's very well off that can, like, take care of Virginia and take her to school or, you know, she might meet someone who has money or whatever. And apparently Edgar was protective over that and wasn't in – he was like, no. I don't know if it was you can't take her away or this person has bad intent. I don't know. So he was like, I'm going to – take care of her i'm gonna marry her mm-hmm. so that's why it's okay so there was like a sense of urgency about it i, th- I think so okay. like i'm not a hundred percent certain but i know it was kind of a 
I I love her more than anything or mm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I promise I'll I'll take care of her. Mm. So <laughs> they got married. Okay. Um, I'm not convinced, but not convinced. The okay. other weird thing. I mean, there's several. <laughs> uh, oh, oh my God. So <clears throat> something. I mean, yes, the the marriage is weird. But they were a very happy, loving couple. They did deeply care for each other. Mm. And it kind of just seemed more of a, like, a love, you would love a family member Mm -hmm. type thing. Not like a, a okay. So it's, it's also speculated that they may not have even been intimate with each other Mm. and there are records that show like even the first two years of their marriage they didn't even share a bed together Mm -hmm. it's also speculated that virginia died a virgin oh but this is also this is obviously extremely controversial but it's it's you know just kind of the relationship they had he called her sissy which also <laughs> very weird, but it's uh-huh. like more of an endearment like yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make it better. Like whenever I'm trying to <laughs> explain it, and like nothing makes it better. But I, I think it yeah. was just. Um, I think I know what you mean. Right, I like they just mean. they ca- really cared about each other, and mm-hmm. she, she didn't have any children. Not saying. Okay. Okay. Anyway, they didn't they didn't share a bed together mm-hmm. until like two years after. It, if even if they did, but. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's kind of, you know, they they cared about each other and apparently they wrote each other, you know, really romantic letters and poems for each other. Like on Valentine's Day, she wrote him an acrostic poem that spelled mm-hmm. out his name and it was like super cute or whatever. So they they loved each other, but I that's that's all I really have to say about that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to stop because I, I keep okay. like <laughs> anyway. There's a German word for that. <laughs> for for what being awkward no when you're trying to make something better but you actually make it worse oh that's my life i what's it called i will title my memoir after that fish limb i love it so yeah anyway she might have died a virgin it's also like okay. speculate like maybe he wasn't even sexually attracted to anyone you know i don't mm, know he did have a teenage crush on a british poet where he he really liked this one British poet who was like a really romantic poet. Was it a male poet? It was a male poet. Oh, yeah. okay. I can find out. I'll circle back. Okay. Despite everything wrong with that, like I I said, they are were a really happy couple. Um, but they're obviously like any marriage. There is tension with the fact that he is essentially a starving artist. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. because he didn't have a steady job. He would just like kind of do like kind of freelance things or he wouldn't mm-hmm. stay anywhere a long time. So they would move around a lot trying to find other jobs in other cities. Um, It was also said that Poe had a drinking problem and he couldn't like mm-hmm. keep a job. Unfortunately. <sighs> mm-hmm. It wasn't until he found his voice being a critic that led to him having more success because he was notorious for ripping people a new one <laughs> and i love that like not just insulting the work but insulting like the author as well <laughs> it's like this poem sucks and so does the guy that wrote it so <laughs> wow. i guess like 
he was entertaining at the time or that was kind of where you know he he got his he found his niche you know Mm. personal attacks on people right and as so as part of his character it was said that if he cared about you he cared with his whole heart but if he didn't like you like he would not hold back So as I had mentioned, he had moved around a lot, taken different writing jobs, and in 1840, he had written another book of short stories called The Tales of Grotesque and Arabesque, which was paid in copies of his own book rather than money. So it's like, here's some copies of the book you just wrote. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Who made that deal? I don't know, sir. I mean, maybe with the intent to, like, sell it, but he was like, what am I going to do with this? Oh, my God. So he also tried to launch his own paper, but it failed due to his lack of funding. In 1842, his wife started showing signs of illness, Mm. which kind of made him start to drink a little bit more heavily. So what happened was she was at their home and she was singing and playing the piano when she broke a blood vessel in her throat. <gasps> so that's like an early sign of consumption. What's consumption? Tuberculosis. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Damn. So that like kind of started to spiral like a stressful, stressful situation for mm. him. Reasonably so. In 1845, Poe's famous poem, The Raven, was Mm. published in the New York Mirror that pretty much put him on the map and made him the well-known writer he was. He then released more short stories and poems. He could gather crowds, and he would even lecture about poetry and writing. And then he started demanding, like, more pay for his work, Mm. which good for him. Right. And Charles Dickens even made a point to meet him when he was, like, making his rounds touring or meeting people. Pretty cool. Like, no big deal. Good good for him. Right? Um, However, even though, like, this article was his big break, he was paid only, like, $9 for it. Oh. $309. Okay. So, like... For the raven, really? You know? Yeah. (laughs) Not very good, but... In 1846, Poe and Virginia moved to their little cottage in Fortham, which is now known as the Bronx. Sadly, in 1847, Virginia died from tuberculosis at the age of 24. Oh, my God. Which was the same age and illness that Edgar's mother had died from. So he was obviously distraught. His friend said that he was really never the same after that. He couldn't, like, write or do anything for several months after this. And it was even said that people said this would be, like, the end of him. Oh. What was that? I don't know. Okay. Okay. It's fine. I'm sure it's okay. I'm sure something fell off the counter. Or maybe, like, on the recycling. Yeah. I'm just going to say that. Okay. (laughs) And if, like, we're not talking about demons today. It's, no, it's we're talking about a poet. Oh. Yeah, it's fine. He's like, actually, that's not what happened. <laughs> uh, excuse me, I have, I need to express my opinion. Um, excuse me, I would like to speak for, on my behalf. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine? No. <laughs> <laughs> if, like, Edgar Allan Poe was like, um, that's actually false. Okay. Uh. <laughs> oh, sorry, sir. In summer of 1849, he then returned to Richmond, but 
kind of a plot twist. Oh, God, not another one. (laughs) (laughs) He ended up getting together with his childhood sweetheart, Sarah. Do you remember her? Oh, yeah. So she actually was also a recent widow. No way. Yeah, so weird. And I guess it didn't freak her out that his wife was so young. Maybe he didn't mention it. She was 21. It was fine. Yeah. (laughs) Like at that time, it was only six your difference not 11 mm. with an adolescent teen mm. okay yeah okay uh, i mean she was on the cusp of 14 but that do- also does not make it better <laughs> oh jeez. okay i'm sorry i'm sorry okay but yeah like came full circle it's like oh like yeah my wife just died and oh my god my husband just died oh my god oh my like god. we should hang out it like, sounds like a hallmark movie kind of in a really freaking gothic way yes <laughs> it's very fitting for his life, I yes. guess. But they did get engaged. And according to a letter he wrote to his aunt, they were going to get married that October. So this was in like August, September mm-hmm. um, that they decided. So here's what's so wild about like, here's kind of why I'm obviously I'm very interested in him. Like, I think he's a, mm-hmm. a great poet and like, he seems like really metal like i don't know but uh here's what's really the insomnia report part of it Mm -hmm. i'm excited i have a feeling i think i know what's going to happen but i don't know for sure okay so in late september of 1849 poe left richmond for baltimore and his whereabouts for several days were unknown so he went missing It wasn't until he was found almost a week later in a ditch outside of a Baltimore pub on October 3rd. Uh. He was completely delirious, and he was wearing clothes that did not belong to him. They took him to Washington Central Hospital on October 7th. He was in and out of consciousness. He was not able to mutter, like, full sentences, and he was never in a stable place or a stable enough place to talk about what had happened. Wow. He then muttered, Lord, help my poor soul, and died. Those were his last words. Okay, that's not what I expected to happen. I thought you were going to say that his fiance was going to die again. And that's why oh. he writes so many sad poems. Oh, my God. I wonder yeah. if he just, like, went on a binge drink. So that's, okay, so you that's know? one of the theories to this day his death is a mystery but what's weird is there is no death certificate filed or found Mm. like they don't know if they even wrote one which is kind of weird a newspaper article said it was congestion of the brain which is like kind of a fancy way of or back then it was way of saying alcohol alcohol poisoning Mm -hmm. what's really sad is his fiance and his family didn't even know about it until like it, they read it in the newspaper. Oh no. Isn't that horrible? Oh my god. Yeah. That's so horrible. Uh I mean back then you couldn't call or yeah. or do anything, you know. So Oh my god. Yeah. So here's some theories about what could have happened. Okay. He could have had a brain injury. Mm. He could have had epilepsy or like had an episode, but that doesn't mm. explain like several days. Yeah, I know sometimes if you are, like, a heavy drinker, it can give you seizures. Mm. 
It could have been that. He could have also gotten tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Um, it was said that a couple of days before he left his fiance, Sarah wasn't feeling too well. So they did like a doctor house call. And the doctor said like, you know, everyone should rest and Poe, like, I don't think you should do any traveling. Mm. So <laughs> weird. Uh, do they know why he went to Baltimore? I think it was for a job or like he oh, okay. like agreed to do editing. It, w- it was for work. I don't mm-hmm. know what it was, but um, it wasn't just like, I have to leave. And then he took the midnight train. <laughs> right. Going to Baltimore. Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the actual lyric. Right. It could have been cholera. It could have been carbon monoxide poisoning. It could have been mercury or lead poisoning. Mm. He could have overdosed on a painkiller. Mm. It was it was said that he was he was using stuff to try to numb his pain. I guess oh, maybe spy holes, syphilis. <laughs> spy holes. I was like, what is that? Is it a disease? Like what? No, I think I spelled syphilis wrong and <laughs> autocorrect put spy holes, but it's not saying that spy hole is a mis... What does spy oh hole mean? Oh my God. I don't know. He died <laughs> of a spy hole. <laughs> I, mm. <laughs> it was thought that he might have had rabies. Oh God. Um, well, It's actually very interesting because in the 90s, they had a doctor do like a... a blind like patient report so they changed the circumstance or mm-hmm. they they explained the circumstance of his death or his hospital stay or whatever but they used like a fake name Got it. to try to be like oh what do you think the cause of this death was mm-hmm. and some of the things that he was experiencing was like obviously delusions and and incoherent and like not remembering things and mm-hmm. like the behaviors kind of matched it and one of the things said if you have rabies, apparently you're reluctant to drink water and he mm, was doing mm-hmm. that. But so that no. was like a theory. But who knows? He could have been mugged or beaten. He could have had a brain tumor. So really, like, obviously they didn't have what, the technology we have today. So mm. you will probably never know. It also could have been murder. Oh. So according to an article by Smithsonian, it says that Sarah had three brothers that didn't want Poe and Sarah to get married. I don't know why. Like, I don't know why people don't like this man. Mm. They're like, you can't marry or you can't be a right. Or like this poor man. I don't mm. know. <sighs> it was, but apparently her family didn't want him to get married, her to get married to him. Mm-hmm. And maybe they could have killed him. Like that was one of the theories. Which, I mean, rude. Like, if you, you you can stand up at the wedding and be like, is there a right. reason? Like, you don't have to do that. You can talk about it, but. Here's, I think, a very interesting theory. I, I want to know your thoughts. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of Coupin, but. No. Okay. So, he could have been a victim of Coupin. What is this? He's thrown in a chicken coop and he gets pecked to death. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> so during the this time, Baltimore had pretty sketchy politics. And cooping was where they would kidnap men, drug them, disguise them, and force them to vote at various locations repeatedly at 
throughout like the city and then they were abandoned which would explain why he was wearing clothes that did not fit him or like that did not belong to him. That day, it was actually found that it was a voting day. Mm. And he was found in a ditch outside of the pub that doubled as a polling place. Wow. So kind of sus. I think that's, yeah, that's very interesting. I think that's probably the most realistic theory. Um, I think that just like kind of, I mean, it could have been, like, a combination of things. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the thing. So they just, like, maybe, like, drugged him incorrectly or something? Yeah, or... Or he had some kind of reaction or something? He had a reaction, or maybe, you know, they beat him up to, like, mm. try to make him, like, not remember, mm-hmm. or maybe he was, like, prior to this, he was using some other substance, mm-hmm. um, like alcohol or something and then like it had like an amplified effect Mm, Um, yeah maybe he had some sort of injury maybe he did have rabies maybe he did have spy hole i don't know (laughs) Uh syphilis (laughs) i don't know but i think that's a very interesting theory which i think makes especially the clothes part like yeah i don't know but i i guess they would just be like yes i am a voter and then they would like take them all over the place but wow I don't know. Um, okay. He also had an arch nemesis. Oh, dun, dun, dun. As I mentioned earlier, Poe was a pretty brutal critic, and it obviously rubbed some writers the wrong way. There was a man named Rufus Griswold. What a guy. What a name. Which makes me think of Harry Potter. Rufus Scrimdraw was like one of the uh, ministers after Fudge, I think. And then Grindelwald was like the evil wizard. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, is that where JK? Like, she was probably where she got it from. I need to think of names. Right. (laughs) Anyway, Poe and Griswold met while they were working at a paper called The Daily Standard. And at first, they were fine with each other, you know, a typical office friendliness where if you're pouring coffee, I'll be like, hey, but I'm not going to ask you to happy hour, you know, like Mm -hmm. just they're they're cordial. Right. Griswold was making a collection of various poems that he was going to publish, and he asked Poe to review it. And at this time, Poe had a pretty solid reputation of being a reviewer or critic or or what have you. Mm Mm-hmm. Poe then said, oh, you know, that's totally fine. Here are some of my poems if you want to include them, and here are some other poets that I think would be good for this collection. Griswold was like, oh, uh, you know, maybe if I include Poe, he would write me, like, a better review. Mm-hmm. But he ignored Poe's recommendations, and he only included, like, a very small portion of Poe. And he, like, emphasized, like, some of Griswold's, like, direct friends more or, like, his own works or whatever. Mm. So that was kind of – Poe was kind of mad about it. He's like, I gave you all these suggestions. You didn't use any of it. You Mm. put my poems at the end of the book. So Poe was like (laughs) – Griswold also paid Poe thinking, like, that would influence him. He's like, give me five Mm. stars, you know? But Poe wrote in the review, good, not great. Uh, none of the other poets are anything significant. Like, no one will ever remember them. It was overall, like, pretty bland. So Rufus was, like, really mad because he's, like, first he was expecting it to be a bigger hit. Mm-hmm. Second of all, he's, like, dude, I paid you. Mm-hmm. I included you in this project of mine. And then you just say it's bland, like, the audacity. Yeah. 
So obviously that rubbed him the wrong way. When Poe was a lecturer, he also ripped him apart and was like, he's a mediocre writer and like mm. this is inadequate or like he associates with people that are people who plagiarize. Just, you mm. know, not not being, not putting him in a super great light. Poe was let go at one of his positions and Griswold ended up taking that role. Mm. And to add insult to injury... He was like, oh, by the way, I get a higher salary than you had, huh? Oh, no. <laughs> so it was oh, my like, God. This bitch. So when Poe died, Griswold is the one who wrote the article breaking the news about his death. Oh, my death. God. And, but he was using a fake name called Ludwig. <laughs> so he like wasn't even like, I'm going to write this, this article, but I'm not going to use my name. Mm. So this is this is the he- the first paragraph. Okay. <clears throat> Edgar Allan Poe is dead. Period. He died in Baltimore the day before yesterday. This announcement will startle many, but few will be grieved by it. Oh my god. The poet was known personally or by reputation in all this country. He had readers in England, and in several of the states of continental Europe. But he had few or no friends. The regret of his death will be suggested principally by the consideration that in him, literary art lost one of its most brilliant but erratic stars. Like, and, like... That's sort of a backhanded compliment. Right. He was like, I know you guys are going to be shocked, but, like, no one's going to be really upset. He didn't have that mm. many friends. Like, yeah, he was a good writer, but he was, like, kind of loony. Wow. Um, but again, like, he he used a fake name to write it. Mm. <laughs> Apparently, the audacity gets more odd. Okay. Dust. Griswold also said that Poe asked him personally to be his literary executor, and he published Memoirs of an Author for him as his dying wish. I'm skeptical of that. Good. You should be. Okay. <laughs> so in this book, he totally tried to tarnish Poe's character, basically saying he was found, you know, as a drunken, drug addict, a womanizer, a complete lunatic, and completely made him into, put him into a light that he was, like, a terrible person. He, mm-hmm. Like, the reason he was so good at writing was because he was crazy. But he tried to do this to, you know, make it so people would be like, oh, my gosh, like, this mm-hmm. this Poe character is crazy. So this book... Did he pretend it was written by Poe? That's a good question. He wrote it ab- about Poe. Okay. But he made fraudulent letters or like diary entries mm-hmm. or whatever about Poe or like he wrote a fake letter um, basically explaining that he wanted him to do this even though okay. there was like no signed witnesses. Like it was wow. very like incredibly. Very to the bit. So he he tried to do this to get people to hate them. But as we know by, like, human nature, and, like, this is true today, like, whenever we see a trash fire, we're like, cool, Mm -hmm. you know? So if anything, that made him more more popular and more Mm -hmm. like, oh, my gosh, I love it. So that made, like, the book sale, like, so much more because, oh, my gosh, this guy was so weird or he had, like, such a troubled life. They must have made this guy some money then. So that's the thing, too. Like, he made all the money from it. None of it went to his family. 
Wow. People that knew Poe well were like, this is not accurate. And they were incredibly ticked off. So a lot of the the reputation that we know about Poe even to this day is still kind of stemmed from this. So mm. like historically, he may not have been that much of like of a drinker or like, you know, he realistically people have said like oh he you know was kicked out of school because or like he wasn't in the military because he uh he was kicked out of west point because he wasn't like attending class or or whatever but it was like honestly it was primarily financial mm-hmm. and like yes he did have a drinking problem but his it wasn't super bad until his wife died mm. And a lot of his friends or, or people that knew him said, yeah, he drank, but it was like he was a lightweight. Mm-hmm. So even to this day, a lot of people have come forward and said, you know, this may not be true, but it's still, I guess it's one of those things that if you hear something like a negative, that sticks, even if it's mm-hmm. not like accurate. So right. because of this man, that's kind of the troubled artist that we know. He did have a very sad life he had a lot of people he cared about die in very sad ways mm. so that's kind of where it came from but he was incredibly creative anyway so so that's how we know a lot about poe and i'm gonna just close it off with a couple of facts about him and then yes. i will stop talking your ear off so some of his famous works of course he wrote a short story called hans fall in 1835 and it was the first modern sci-fi Ooh. and it was about a man named hans who was going to go to the moon in a hot air balloon. Poe wrote this as a hoax, but people took it literally, and they thought this man actually went to the moon in a hot air balloon. Like a, kind of like a a War of the Worlds type thing. Yeah, Mm. exactly, where people are like, oh my gosh, like what? And at that point, people hadn't even crossed the ocean in a hot air balloon or whatever. Like, I would not be comfortable doing that. But anyway, so he wrote it as like like a spoof or whatever, and then two days later, the newspaper had to write an article that was like, this did not actually happen, but he was like Mm. so convincing, writing like scientific terms and and stuff that people are like, oh my gosh, like they went to the moon? hundred years later, people. (laughs) (laughs) So then he wrote uh, the murders in the Rue Morgue in 1841, which was the first detective story. He wrote The Gold Bug, which won him a $100 cash prize, I guess today's money, and it was well known for using cryptography codes. Codes and like riddles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had a cat named Katarina. Oh my God, that's so cute. <laughs> and he would put his cat on his shoulder when he would write to help him concentrate. I want to name a cat Katarina. Isn't that great? I love so it. So cute. The Baltimore Ravens are named to honor his work. Oh. I did not know that. I wonder how he would feel about sports teams. Okay, so to my next bullet, oh. he was actually incredibly athletic. Really? As a team. So like under his emo layers, he was a talented runner, a boxer, a long jumper, and swimmer. And Mm. he was a local legend because he swam six miles upstream in the Virginia James River when he was 16. Holy cow. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. When he was a teen, he had a crush on his friend's mom. And then he wrote the poem, Stacy's Mom. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but he did dedicate a romantic poem that's titled To Helen, and it was dedicated to her. 
she had died when he was 15 and it was really devastating for him because she was also like a, a motherly figure okay a lot to unpack there yeah but um right but very interesting there were seven people that attended his funeral and he was actually buried in an unmarked grave um mm. like it didn't have a headstone or or anything and then years later they did make a headstone for him but it was destroyed by a train that crashed oh and then people got together and they paid for a monument <clears throat> so they had to move his body and they couldn't really find where it was so they dug up the wrong body and then they found his body and then they moved it but the coffin broke when they moved <gasps> it so they had to like figure it out and then apparently like there are some pieces of his like coffin at the museum or whatever Wow. Which is uncomfy. But yeah. yeah. This, so this also Virginia's body was moved. Apparently they had to relocate the crypt where she was buried because they were going to build something. But she didn't have any living family to claim her remains. However, there was a biographer named William Gill who was writing about Poe, and he heard about this, so he rescued her bones. Mm. And he had to keep her bones in a box under his bed for years before they were ready to, like, rebury. Um, okay. <laughs> like, what? Like, do you want a haunting? Because that's how you get a haunting. That's how you get a poltergeist. Like, <laughs> oh, let's put these under my, my bed. My dude. Can you imagine if... You got married and your wife had no idea and she was like cleaning out and she's like, what is this? Oh my God. It's like, oh, that's like her Ellen Poe's wife. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, um, um, that's, that's actually kind of funny because this guy was yeah. probably just like totally fine with it. Yeah. I mean. Like did not face I him. mean, thankful. I mean, it was good that he did. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. who knows what would have happened. But under his bed. Under though? his bed. Surely there are other places you could put that. <laughs> or like, I'm sure they could have held it somewhere else. Right. But he was like, I'll take those. <laughs> Add it to my collection. Okay. <laughs> About Poe, he was like All obsessed. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So one last thing is it's said that Poe's cottage, which is now the museum, is said to be haunted. Ooh. There's an apparition of a woman in 1800s clothing that will appear. Guests will feel as if they're being looked at or tapped on their shoulder. Windows and doors open on their own. People say that they see candlelight bopping like through the windows uh, when the museum is closed. So if mm. you look in, it, it looks like a candle's going across. Poe's ghost is said to haunt the downtown area and allegedly... Uh, there's a ghost that they named Edgar. I don't know if it's actually Edgar, but it's it's called the Horse You Came In On Saloon, which is okay. the oldest pub in Baltimore. And then his fiance Sarah hired a medium because she thought she was seeing signs like from the poet, and she thought the that he was trying to communicate with her so she mm -hmm. hired a medium and apparently this medium wrote a poem saying it was poe trying to communicate through her wow which would be cool but probably not yeah 
could you imagine if you were that medium high and she's like ha 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 like, <laughs> finally my big break <laughs> do so they much think fraud. that the ghost is um virginia the one haunting the cottage it, yeah probably because mm. i think she lived because poe when he got re-engaged to sarah like was in virginia mm. so i think so okay this one tradition has started where on Poe's birthday, an unknown person leaves a glass of uh, whiskey on his grave. Hmm. And, um, you know, every year someone leaves it. They they didn't know who started doing this, but the tradition has still gone. So to that, I raise a glass, quoth the raven, nevermore shall be lifted never more that's the last line of the poem the raven sorry that was long no that's okay i i like literally know nothing about i know that's what i thought it was so it's like what i said earlier like we know who they are but Mm. we don't know anything yeah really interesting that is really interesting yeah thank you yeah I'm going to read his works with a little more perspective now. Yeah. I found a bunch of famous people read his poems, such as uh, Christopher Lee. I love his voice. Mm. And Morgan Freeman. So, like, you can just listen to, like, these actors with amazing voices read his poems. That's so cool. And they're so good. What do you think happened to him? Like, I think the Coupin thing, but... Yeah, I think that sounds probable, but, like, who knows? Yeah. So, I feel like I always do this, like, theme, (laughs) but here we go. Okay. Okay. It's the 1960s. Okay. In the United States of America. Racism. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. For black people, this means the civil rights movement, police brutality, Jim Crow, segregation, fighting back against the racism that this country was built on. Police brutality, as I just mentioned, against black people is part of that structural racism and continues today with the murders of George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, Breonna Taylor, Philando Castile, and many, many others. In 1965, President Johnson called for a war on crime and police funding was increased leading to more aggressive policing tactics in the context of riots in response to racism, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, and the long hot summer of 1967, which consisted of 159 race riots in major cities across the U.S. Mm. The Vietnam War was also going on and igniting related protests. So the 60s were intense. Yeah. There's a lot going on. And they went to the moon in a hot air balloon. They did. Oh, not quite, but almost. <laughs> almost. In a spaceship. It's the same thing. Right? <laughs> I, I don't trust right, that. <laughs> Bad idea. There's a lot of tension surrounding racism during this time. And one response to all of this emerged in October of 1966, which is the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Okay. Later known as just the Black Panther Party. Okay. Have you heard of them? Yes, I have. There you go. Okay. So activists and college students named Huey Newton and Bobby Seale founded. Huey Newey. 
Huh? Huey Newton? Newton, yeah. Huey, Huey Newey. <laughs> Huey Newey. I don't know. I'm just making a name. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were like referencing something. I'm like, who is that? No, Huey, Hugh Newton. I was like, Hugh New. <laughs> Huey Newton. Huey Newey. Yes. Um, <laughs> You're like, please stop talking. <laughs> um, Huey Newton and Bobby Seal founded the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California, in 1966, and it spread across the country, eventually opening 45 chapters in cities all over the U.S. So, they were frustrated by the lack of progress other groups were making on police brutality and general injustice in their communities. For example, at the time, Oakland had 661 police officers, but only 16 were black. So, growing out of the black power movement, which was based on, like, black nationalism, socialism, and fighting white supremacy, um, that's a very, like, basic explanation of it, the Black Panther Party's main objective was to protect black people from the police and to uplift underserved communities. They had a party platform called the Ten Point Program, and here's what it was, just so you get an idea of what they were all about. They said, what we want now, exclamation point. (laughs) We want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. We want full employment for our people. We want an end to the robbery by the capitalists of our black and oppressed communities. We want decent housing fit for shelter of human beings. We want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present-day society. We want all black men to be exempt from military service. We want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. We want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. We want all black people, when brought to trial, to be tried in court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities, as defined by the Constitution of the United States. We want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. I want that too. Same. Like, I, you I want just this saying for... that's not like a question. Yeah. Like, why are we still fighting for this? Exactly. Like, the, these are all relevant today still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, at the time in California, it was legal for citizens to carry loaded weapons as long as they weren't concealed. So, the Black Panther Party started doing something they called cop watching. They would have these citizen patrols walking or driving around with these loaded weapons. And if they saw a cop stop someone, they would stand there from a distance, like holding their weapons and just watching to make sure nothing untoward happened. They wanted to keep the police in check and prevent police brutality. And if the police confronted them, they would just like tell them, like, you know, according to the law, like, we're allowed to carry these weapons. We're allowed to be here. Like, you can't do anything about it, basically. Mm-hmm. Which I think is kind of creative. Yeah. <laughs> and, I yeah, I'm curious as to how effective that was in preventing police brutality. But they also did more than follow the cops around all day. They believed that they were essentially better equipped to help their communities than the government, which, like, that's fair. 
and they organized around relevant issues in their communities like healthcare, housing, employment, fairness in the justice system, and more. They set up free breakfast programs for school children and free health clinics, legal, legal services, classes on politics and economics, and first aid and self-defense and created ambulance and drug rehab programs. In the 1968-1967 school year, the Black Panther Party fed more than 20,000 children. Awesome. So they're doing good things. They grew a lot by 1969. um, Membership peaked in the country at 10,000 people, and they had a newspaper that was circulated to like 250,000 people. So they were getting their message out there. But the press demonized the black panther party shocker i know right um saying they were racist and they were like brutal black men who wanted to kill all white people but um in fact over the course of the organization's existence the majority of its members were women Hmm. Um, including prominent members like Kathleen Cleaver, Angela Davis, and Erica Hudgens. And the Black Panther Party worked together with different communities, white communities, Latinx communities, Asian, Native American, and they all kind of worked together to set up these programs in their communities. Hmm. So they they weren't what the press said they were. Okay. Yeah. But the federal government and law enforcement also hated them. Of course. Um, yeah. The government branded the Black Panther Party as a black nationalist hate group. Mm. And the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, who just, like, sucks in general. <laughs> Wait, a Hoover is a vacuum, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and they suck, so. Oh, my God. <laughs> there we go. That's why That's why he's named that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Wait, is that actually the Hoover back? Like, was it named I don't think it was. I don't know. (laughs) I like that theory, though. Mm. Yeah, I think we can go with (laughs) probably. He painted the Black Panther Party as domestic terrorists, basically saying that, quote, the Black Panther Party is the greatest internal threat to the nation, end quote. Uh, He called for law and order, and the police kind of saw all of this as permission to amp up their brutality against black people and people in the party specifically. And all of this rhetoric on the government's end is, of course, exaggerated. And it's worth noting, according to Curtis Allen, a professor at Arizona State University, who has written books about the Black Panther Party and whose 2016 TED Talk I got a lot of this information from, he said that 73% of all newspaper articles written about the party at the time, were written by the FBI or people the FBI recruited. Okay. So, so this sounds very 2020. It's so... Yeah. Like, it, it does, doesn't it? It it literally... Like, you could be... Tell, without saying... If you were to talk about it without saying, like, it's about, like, the Black Panthers in the 60s... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically the same. I know. Kind of. Yeah. There's still a lot that hasn't changed. Yes. Anyway. I know. Of course. Okay. So they're writing these articles. The writers are are not legitimate. They're yeah. It's they're trying to spread this message fake amongst 
news amongst the people exactly fake news there were often violent clashes between police and party members where members and officers would end up dead and so yeah that was happening and party members would also be arrested for minor offenses because they they were kind of like you know going on this agenda they would arrest for anything right but it didn't stop with the police or didn't even start with the police the fbi employed something called cointel pro that sounds like a computer processor it does it's am i saying that right I well, don't know. It's, <laughs> it stands for Counterintelligence Program. Cointel Pro. I'm just going to say that. Okay. Okay. So, and the goal was to focus on what they called black nationalist hate groups. Mm. And it was started in 1967, like this version of it, but it was based on a similar program in the 50s that Hoover used against who he thought were communists. So that was when they were like blacklisting people and stuff like in Hollywood and you know, because okay. everyone was communist back then. Of course. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so COINTELPRO's objectives were to prevent the coalition of black nationalist groups. And they wanted to prevent the rise of a quote unquote messiah who could like unify this black nationalist movement, basically. Mm-hmm. And like they didn't want another like Malcolm X or like martin luther king jr to to bring more people together basically um and they didn't want these groups to be groups like the party to be growing especially among young people Mm. so but cointelpro also used like they used some legal tactics but also illegal tactics when they were trying to bring this group down which included going through their mail tapping their phones and their like places of residence they would break in places and like search um they used paid informants and they also used anonymous mailing so they would like write letters that said they were from like certain chapters of the party like saying bad things about certain people and send it to their headquarters or something they would like they were trying to like sabotage yeah stir up trouble stir the pot basically. you're a pot stirrer yeah for sure and divide the party members basically. so nothing sketchy mm-hmm. okay so now we're going to talk about one person in particular one important member of the black panther party fred hampton okay he was the chairman of the illinois black panther party he sounds familiar yeah See? i should know more about him but well, that's why we're talking about it. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He was born in the southwest suburbs of Chicago on August 30th, 1948. Wait, is this like about the Chicago 7? Um, He was like very tangentially involved in that. Okay. But sorry. not quite. Okay. It's, yeah. Uh, sorry. No, no. You're good. So he grew up in Maywood, Illinois. Okay. A western suburb between Elmhurst and Oak Park. There is a stop on (laughs) the Union Pacific West. Maywood is next. The doors are about about to close. close. (laughs) Now approaching Maywood Park. (laughs) 
River Forest. College Avenue. Wheaton. Winfield. <laughs> Ogilvy Transportation Center. Can you tell we live in Chicago? Can you tell we've commuted before? <laughs> uh, people not from here are going to be like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> the next stop will be Geneva. <laughs> uh, okay, so... <laughs> So Fred Hampton, growing up, he was a good student and athlete. He wanted to play center field for the New York Yankees. When he was 10, he started hosting weekend breakfasts for the other children in the neighborhood. And he would cook himself. Um, So it was kind of like a foreshadowing to his later free breakfast programs in the Black Panther Party. He was known for being incredibly charismatic and persuasive. He had a real talent for convincing people to join the cause and fight against injustice in their communities. Mm. In high school, he was already an active organizer. He was head of his school's interracial council. He boycotted homecoming to allow black girls to run for homecoming queen. I love they weren't that. Allowed to. Mm-hmm. He also pushed Maywood to fund a summer jobs program, and he brought the community together to request an integrated pool and recreation center in town. All of this was noticed by a guy named Don Williams, who was head of the West Suburban chapter of the NAACP, and he noticed Hampton's activities in gumption, I guess. Don Williams suggested that Fred Hampton set up a youth association of the NAACP in the area. So he did, and... Hampton graduated from high school in 1966, and he enrolled at Triton Junior College, where he majored in pre-law. He wanted to learn more about the legal system so he could use it as a defense against the police. And over time, his views on what it meant to fight white supremacy changed. He had marched with Martin Luther King Jr. when he came to Chicago. That's so cool. But that is really cool. But he was disturbed by the white people dressed as Nazis who would come to the marches. I would be disturbed also. Yeah, to throw rocks and spit on them. For ex- uh, <laughs> so his views started to align more with Malcolm X's, quote, by any means necessary philosophy. And so that is a little bit more, I mean, it's more militant. It's not nonviolent, mm-hmm. which is where the Black Panthers kind of came in. So obviously, like, this is divisive in a lot of different communities. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really, like, have an opinion on it either way but in november 1968 activist bobby rush who's now in illinois uh u.s representative in Mm. congress and fred hampton they opened the chicago chapter of the black panther party and hampton was chairman and bobby rush was deputy minister hampton would later become chairman of the illinois chapter and they pledged to stand against racism, capitalism, and police brutality. So they followed in the footsteps of other chapters and established those free aid programs already mentioned and also brokered non-aggression packs among Chicago's biggest gangs, which is pretty cool. They also joined with other groups in the city focusing on issues in various communities to form the Rainbow Coalition, which engaged in joint action against poverty poverty, corruption, police brutality, and substandard housing, Um, and eventually, like, more radical socialist groups throughout the city were absorbed into this coalition. Mm. Many white people, conservative black people, and the media were 
as I said, alienated by the party's militant approach, and the police had their eyes on them. Hmm. Um, Hampton was often harassed and arrested for minor crimes like traffic violations. In 1968, he was accused of stealing $71 worth of ice cream bars and giving them to kids in the street. Oh. And he was convicted in May 1969 and sentenced to two to five years in prison. Mm, for ice cream um, for children. Yeah. So, it, like, it kind of showed how the government was trying to stop the Black Panther Party, like, through these inflated charges. Of sort course. Of. Yeah. Yeah. The Chicago Police Department also had a pretty large intelligence section of the squad generally referred to as the Red Squad, which was also targeting the party. And the FBI was watching the Chicago chapter as well and had been since it formed. Um, And their goal, one of their tactics, the FBI, was to embed informants in these groups as they were first forming so that they could gather more effective intel. Mm. So someone very close to Hampton who had been with the chapter from the beginning was actually a paid informant for the FBI. This guy named William O'Neill. He was the chief of security for the Black Panther Party in Chicago Mm. slash Illinois. And he was recruited by this FBI agent named Roy Martin Mitchell. O'Neill had stolen a car and crossed state lines, so it made it like an FBI crime. Mm. Federal crime because he stopped across state lines. And so he told him, the FBI agent told him, he was like, I know you did it, but it's no big deal. We can work it out somehow. And so then a few months later, he called O'Neill and he said, it was payback time. Um, I want you to go and see if you can join the Black Panther Party. And if you can, give me a call. Mm. So he did. Um And the FBI first opened a file on Hampton in 1967, and they started, like, bugging his phone and, like, his mom's house and stuff. But, so a couple of things happened in November 1969, so a couple years later, that amped up their watch on him. The FBI got a tip, presumably from O'Neill, that Hampton was going to be promoted to chief of staff of the National Black Panther Organization. Um, keep in mind, he's 21 at this oh time. Oh, my gosh. So, he's, like, very good at his job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God, what was I doing at 21? Same. Crying in the library, eating Cheetos. No, that was yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> if only the library was open. Oh, mm. now it's more sad. Sorry, I made it worse. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, like- J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, was afraid that Hampton, with all of his talents of organizing and speaking and leadership, might become the new Black Messiah. Mm. So he was like, nah, like we have to like... Put a stop to this. Right. We have to bring him down, basically. And there was another catalyst for what was about to happen. There was an altercation between police and party members that left two CPD officers and one party officer dead. Mm. And... Um, the FBI joined together with CPD, Chicago Police Department, and the state's attorney's police to take down Hampton. They were like, we want revenge. Um, they believed he was a dangerous figure in the movement, and they were like just really pissed off because like, this happened. Yeah. 
Um, there are more details on that if you Google it, but yeah. Um, and, th- and then O'Neill, the informant who was in the party and was their security officer, also gave law enforcement a layout of Hampton's apartment. So, on December 3rd, 1969, Hampton taught a political science class at a local church, which most of the members of the chapter came to. And then a few people went over to his apartment at 2237 West Monroe to spend the night. In total, there were nine party members there. And O'Neill was already there. When they got there, he made them dinner, which they ate at midnight, which I can relate to. Um, O'Neill had slipped a drug into Hampton's drink. (gasps) That he had during dinner to sedate him. No. And then he left. O'Neill left. And then around 1.30, Hampton fell asleep mid-sentence talking to his mom on the phone. And he slept on a mattress next to his fiancée, Deborah Johnson, who now goes by Akua Najiri. Um, And she was eight and a half months pregnant. Oh. I don't don't know if I like where this is going. Mm Mm-hmm. So, on December 4th, the next morning, around 4.45 a.m., 14 CPD officers entered the apartment uh, through the front and the back doors with a warrant to search for illegal weapons at the request of Cook County State's Attorney Edward V. Hanrahan. And they started firing their guns basically immediately, uh, killing Mark Clark, who was 22. He was guarding the door um, instantly. No, no, no. The officers dragged his Hampton's fiance from where she was sleeping next to him, and he was just like knocked out from the drugs. And then they, you know, they're firing around the apartment with their guns. Oh um, Hampton was wounded in the shoulder, and then one of the people who was there, his name was Harold Bell. He said he heard the officers talking. Um, one of them said, that's Fred Hampton. The other one said, is he dead? Bring him out. The other one said, he's barely alive. He'll make it. And then they heard two shots. According to Hampton's supporters, they like grabbed him and shot him point blank in the head. Oh. Twice. My God. And then an officer said, he's good and dead now. (gasps) Oh. Yeah. My God. It's like, it's terrible. And then he was, his body was dragged into the doorway of the bedroom and left in a pool of blood. Oh, no. And then they kept, like, firing their guns around the apartment. Oh, my God. In total, they fired between 82 and 99 shots. Fred Hampton was only 21 years old. Oh. Uh, The other seven Panthers who were there, they were beaten and dragged into the street and were arrested on charges of aggravated assault and attempted murder of the officers who came into their apartment. Uh, I'm sorry. And were each held on $100,000 bail. It kind of reminds me of... Um, yeah. I know it's, it's not the same thing, but like Just Kenneth Walker, her boyfriend is, I think he was arrested... Because they also charged him with assault and attempted murder of a police officer mm-hmm. after they burst into their apartment. 
Uh-huh. Did the wife survive? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she did. Mm-hmm. They were charged with aggravated assault and attempted murder of the officers, and they were each held on $100,000 bail. 5,000 people came to Hampton's funeral. He mm. was eulogized by black leaders, including Jesse Jackson and Ralph Abernathy. In his eulogy, Jackson said that when Fred was shot in Chicago, black people in particular and decent people in general bled everywhere. Also, a few days after the raid, the FBI gave Roy Martin Mitchell, the agent who was the handler for O'Neill, the informant, they gave him a $200 bonus for work well done. And after the shooting and the the raid, people tried to paint different pictures of what happened. Mm. The Black Panther Party insisted that Hampton and Clark had been murdered and the police didn't secure the apartment afterwards, so it was, like, open. And so the people the panthers they um held tours of the apartment so people could come and see for themselves i guess what had happened yeah i don't know i mean that's horrible like but then but was like crime scene invest like did they care like probably not like the cops definitely weren't on their side like that that makes me so mad because it's like their word against their like (laughs) and i think that's why they wanted to show people so they could like bear witness to everything right you know yeah so we know that, like, the police shot up the whole apartment, mm-hmm. um, but in contrast, the Panthers shot one time. It was from the shotgun held by Mark Clark, the, the other man who was killed, and people believe it most likely was shot or was fired after he had been shot, but, like, as he was falling or something. Like, as a reaction. Like, yeah, yeah it, it, like, hit the ceiling or something. After the raid, the Cook County state attorney... Edward V. Hanrahan, who under whose orders it happened, he had a press conference and he told the reporters that, quote, a gun battle broke out as state's attorney's policemen tried to enter the apartment to search for illegal weapons. He said that the officers announced themselves that they were met with gunfire and that they stopped th- three times to tell them to come out with their hands up, but the Panthers wouldn't stop shooting. That was his story. Ugh. And he he said, quote, the immediate violent criminal reaction of the occupants in shooting at announced police officers emphasizes the extreme viciousness of the Black Panther Party, end quote. Viciousness. The police said they found a gun next to Hampton's head and that he had shot at them. And they released photos of what looked like bullet holes that they said he had shot from. And the, the Tribune was reporting all of this because they were, like, the more conservative newspaper. I think it was in their op-eds or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Sun-Times, on the other hand, they ran a story showing that those bullet holes they were showing pictures of were actually just nail holes. And then the story of Hanrahan and the police started to kind of fall apart. Mm-hmm. And the survivors who were in jail were able to leave because they like people in the community raised the money to get them out on bail. Mm. And Hampton's fiance had a son, Fred Hampton Jr., mm. on December 29th, 1969. And in the com- in the months after, yeah, things started to change a little bit. In May 1970, all of the attempted murder charges were dropped against the Panthers who were in jail. Mm-hmm. After, like, there was no evidence for those charges, 
And there was a federal grand jury who examined the case and concluded that nearly all of the empty shells and bullets at the scene had been fired by police weapons. Mm. And eventually, like, I think years later, I don't know exactly when, the existence of the um, Contel Pro operation was revealed by the FBI. Okay. And so then people were like, okay, like... Yeah. This is for sure an inside job. And in 1971, state's attorney Hanrahan was indicted along with 13 other people on charges that they tried to prevent the prosecution of police officers for their role in the raid. Mm -hmm. Then he he somehow was like able to run for re-election again. And, yeah, I don't know. Like, the the Democratic Party in Cook County, like, endorsed him again um, to be the state's attorney. But then the black community was like, hell no. And they... None of that. (laughs) They were like, we're going to vote for your Republican, um, like, opponent. And so then then I think he stepped down. But he, he was, though, acquitted later with the charge... From the charges that he had been... um, convicted so in 1982 so quite a while later families of hamden and clark sued the cook county state department and the um, police department and they they it was a 47 dollar 47 dollars it was a 47 million dollar civil suit oh that's much bigger yes (laughs) it was filed by the survivors and the families of clark and hamden and they got 1.8 Two million dollars. Okay. Um, but the settlement didn't concede wrongdoing. I'm s- say that again. <laughs> it didn't concede wrongdoing, so they weren't admitting they did anything wrong. They just gave them some money. Okay. Yeah. They, it, they I'm not like, saying that we did it, but- right? But here's some money. Okay. Yeah. But it was like implicitly kind of an admission that there was something going on between the FBI and the state's attorney to murder fred hampton okay all right yeah well there you there you go fbi informant william o'neill the one who basically helped them pull it off he admitted to being involved in this and in 1990 he committed suicide oh Mm. a public pool was named after hampton in 2006 and on december 4th 2019 on the 50th anniversary of the raid, Nigiri, Hampton's fiance, and other activists gathered at the building or at the house where it took place. And yeah, they basically talked about how important it was to not to not recognize it as something that just happened in the past because people are still being murdered in their houses mm-hmm. that are raided by police. The Illinois Black Panther Party chapter disbanded in 1973. Over time, it you know people kind of left the organization and it sort of just dissolved. But the the repercussions of this police raid still have impacts today. Local politicians have said that it led to like a rallying in the community that led to the first black mayor in Chicago, Harold Washington. Mm. and Harold Washington Library is next exactly <laughs> and that some people even say Barack Obama is kind of a benefited from this legacy mm. as well 
as an Illinois politician. From Chicago. Mm-hmm. So Fred Hampton Jr., his Fred Hampton's son, mm-hmm. who we never met, he has a like a very short Wikipedia page, but he's an activist too. Um, in 1993, he was convicted of arson in a case involving the firebombing of a Korean menswear store oh and jewelry store on Halstead. Oh. And it occurred during the Rodney King riots, like, in Chicago, like, in 1992, um, after the acquittal of the police officers who beat Rodney King. And Hampton always said he was innocent. He didn't do it. He was framed. And during his trial, fire officials said that the bottles, that the gasoline that they found that were in was never broke and that none of his fingerprints were on them. Mm -hmm. But he was sentenced to 18 years in prison (gasps) and he was paroled in 2001. Hmm. Um, but Fallout Boy's song "You're Crashing But You're No Wave" is based on his trial, like ah! Fred Hampton Jr.'s trial. I did not know that. Yeah, I mean, either it's it's like really random. I but love Fallout Boy. Yeah, Chicago Band. Yes, mm. I don't know what they're saying because he sounds like a sim, but I love them. I know <laughs> it's a great song too. I looked up the lyrics and there's like nothing specific in the lyrics that would, where you would see it be like, oh yeah, that's about Fred Hampton Jr. So there's a movie that just came out called Jesus and the Black Messiah. Oh, yeah. I was like, this sounds familiar. Right. Yeah, and it's about Fred Hampton. Um, I don't think it's like a hundred percent accurate. Oh. But Hollywood. Right. You know. But his family consulted on the movie. Okay. And well, that's good. Yeah. It's like, so I guess it's not like. Terrible. I heard it was really good. I really want to see it. Yeah. We should watch it. Yeah. Also, as you mentioned, Trial of the Chicago 7, Fred Hampton plays like a very small role in that story. Okay. So we should watch that too. Because I know it's like kind of the same time. Yeah. Know. Okay. He was like, um, I don't know. He helped out one of the people in the. Okay. I don't. I don't really know. I, I don't really look, at, look that one up. Fred Hampton Jr. also has a podcast oh. called Judas and the Black Messiah that talks about the movie and like wh- what's right and what's what kind of like fabricated not, or not yeah. fabricated, but like exaggerated. Or, exactly. Okay. Um, and yeah. So another thing I just I thought was interesting is so the TED Talk I watched with Curtis Austin. I recommend that one. It's really interesting. It's from 2016, and he talks about how... So he wrote a book about the Black Panther Party, Mm -hmm. and there's an image on the cover of him, or not of him, of, like, members of the organization with their guns, Mm -hmm. like, in the berets that they wore and stuff. And he was flying. He told this story. He was flying... Gosh, I don't even remember where. He was flying somewhere. He was in a plane, in a hot air balloon to the moon. (laughs) Um, Not quite, but that would be even more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Plot twist. He was like going to buy a car somewhere and like had to fly to get it. And he was just going to like drive it home. Oh, my dad did that once. Oh, really? He flew to Texas and drove the car home. Yeah. So people do that, right? Yeah. He's done that with like two cars. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. People do that. So people do that. It's cheaper to do that than to like pay to ship it or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes sense, I guess. But on the way back, he was going to like stop and drop off some of these, some of his books at this place where he had been before. 
where he did a book signing but like he didn't have the books with him but people gave him money in advance and they're like okay just like come back and like drop him off so that's what he was doing Mm. so he didn't really have like luggage or anything he just had this bag full of these books with this image on the cover oh and they called him to the well i don't want to like steal his ted talk from like from him but but security is is like um (laughs) they they called him to the like gate desk or whatever yeah and they called the fbi (laughs) oh and this was like he was telling the story in 2016 i don't know when it actually happened but probably not like that long that long ago and so um yeah they like interrogated him and then they let him go well he was like can i leave and they were like yeah like you're not (laughs) arrested for anything but and then for the next couple years like he found out he was on his record it said he was a felon (gasps) and because his job was like the university was that was like what what did you do he was like i don't know and he kept calling all these organizations and they couldn't tell him what he did. They're like, oh, yeah, it says you're a felon. He's like, but what did I do? And they're like, hmm, like, we're not really sure. And so they like, he said it took him like two years to get that off of his record. And it's because they stopped him at the airport because he had these books that he wrote. So it's still like a, you know, it's so relevant and probably like concerning to law enforcement, which does not surprise me. Mm. And also in 2013 he talked about this also on his ted talk so just watch this ted talk but, just watch it yeah um he you know beyonce did the super bowl halftime show mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and part of it they dressed up like black Panthers, i remember that yeah and apparently like she got death threats and people were like really upset about it so even though you know like you said like it's it's all relevant today yeah you know it's like this is still a sore subject for, I assume, law enforcement and, like, the federal government. Well, they they really fucked up. So, you know, it's... Jeez. It's really bad. It's really bad. Well, yeah. But... And, yeah, I don't think they ever officially admitted that they did wrong here, you know? Where mm. they paid this settlement, but they were never like, yeah, we we, like, messed up. We murdered this person. So that is Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party. But of course, I skimmed over a lot of details and definitely worth diving into um, a little bit further. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. We should watch the film. Yes. Yes. We have so much to watch. I know. It's our new catchphrase. We really do. Well, thank you all so much for listening to our longest episode to date. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening. We really appreciate all of you being here. We would love to give credit to the artists that have helped us. Our music is composed by Colin Whitlish and music production is by Justin Toom. And our cover is by Erica Chase. Tune in next week for another round of True Crime. And please follow us on social media at The Insider Report on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you'd like to submit your own listener report or you have an idea for an episode, you can email us at theinsomniareport at gmail.com. Stay sleepy and spooky and educated. Yes. Class dismissed. Good night. Good night. You're good. <laughs>
I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just really tired. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm, it's all good. Okay. Good. All right. Okay. <laughs> cool.